Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. is campaign timing. We have been thinking a lot about various timing issues around campaigns, in part because people often contact us and ask us questions about timing. And we actually at the toolkit work with people in all, at all places in their campaigns. And this topic is particularly sanguine today because by pure chance, I got an email today from someone whose name is Cozy Faber, who said in her email, we are ready to work with you. Now, here's what's sweet and funny about that. I went back to my calendar and I looked up the first time I was ever, I ever spoke with Cozy Faber and it was December 2018. At which point she said that the school needed a new facility. They were outgrowing their facility. It's a school that was building one grade after another. They desperately needed a new facility and they couldn't find the land. And they have been, she has been in touch with me all this time. And now they have found a piece of land. They are ready to build. And they got their first big check-in, big campaign contribution. So she was reaching out to say, okay, we're ready. Let's go. So talk about timing, right? 2018 to 2021, right? Two years, two years, some it has taken them to actually find the right place and get their plans in, in order. And it's, and it's exciting. So there are several, many things to know about campaign timing. One is that if you are going to be doing a building campaign, as Cozy's organization is doing, it is very difficult to raise money through a capital campaign for a building campaign if you don't have land, if you haven't tied down the site, if you don't have some idea what your building looks like. You don't need all the plans. They don't need to be fully developed, but you have to have a pretty good idea of where it is, where it's going to be and what the building is going to be before you go ahead into your campaign. And I have, honestly, I've tried it other ways. I have worked with organizations to see if it's possible to get donors to put money into a fund that would be available when the site is, is, it comes, comes available. I have found that to be remarkably difficult. So if a capital campaign for a building is in your, is in your sites, right? Don't jump the, don't jump the gun. That's, that's timing thing. Number one, Amy, do you have a timing? A timing thing? I want to follow up on that and feel free, everybody on the line to start putting in your questions into the Q&A box. Um, so, Andrea, if people are supposed to lock down the, the land or, you know, and have the architectural drawings done, how are they going to get the land? You know, there's this chicken and the egg dilemma, right? How do they pay for the land or the site or the building that needs renovation before they start a campaign? Right. So some of you were on with us last week when my wonderful friend and and client Sebastian Ruth was on from Community Music Works. And his was a good example. Right. It's a it's a relatively small organization. A piece of land came up right right in the neighborhood where his organization is. And his organization is is based on serving that neighborhood. So he couldn't go to a different corner of the city. Right. It just didn't make any sense. So a piece of land came up. And Sebastian 
thought to himself, you know what, we should we should see if we can buy that piece of land. They, of course, did not have, I don't know, whatever it was, $250,000 sitting around to buy that land. So like any really good development person, right, Sebastian made a list of the people who were his top 10 donors. And he started going around saying, would you consider giving a, a giving a gift to help us buy this land. And lo and behold, he raised $250,000, right? And they bought the land. And I think he said last week that, that his calculation was that if they couldn't get the building, if they couldn't raise the money for the building, that they could always sell the land. Land was not going to lose value. The land would hold value. So he, he figured that, you know, he could buy the land, control the site, hire the architects, get some preliminary drawings done, and then he could have a capital campaign, which is what he talked to you about about last week, which is going to end up being very successful. And he will have a building. So that's one way to do it, is to use the acquisition of land or the or or enough money to be able to control the land, right? You can control land without buying it. You can get an option, for example, right? And many of you on the call probably know more about more about uh, land deals than I do, but but it's not that you have to buy the whole piece of land. You just need to know where it is, and you need to tie it down. You need to control it, right? Then you can move. Then you can move forward. And the way to do that, of course, is to is to engage your top donors and get them to give a smaller gift. Now, one more thing about Sebastian is that, of course, it was the very same donors who gave, you know, $25,000 gifts or whatever to his land that he went back to when he was ready to do this significant campaign. And some of them, instead of saying, no, I've already given, they radically increased their their gifts when he was ready to go ahead with their, you know, with, with the building project itself. So he used the land acquisition as a, a donor stewardship, if you will, as a, as a donor engagement possibility. Because of course the people who helped him buy the land wanted the building to happen, right? That didn't happen by itself. So that was cool. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very similar to a few conversations I've had recently with potential clients for the toolkit. They've called and said, you know, how can we afford to pay an architect? How can we get drawings? How can we afford to pay your services? And really the answer is to go to some keyboard members or very close donors and say, will you help fund the possibility of this campaign and put up an initial gift? You know, it may not be your ultimate gift or your big gift for the campaign, but will you bet on us, right? Will you bet that this campaign is going to happen because we need $50,000 to get started or $100,000 even before we know for sure if it's going to work? And you probably have people in your community that are interested in enough uh, in seeing you grow enough that they're willing to say, yes, we understand we need to pay an architect to come up with some rough drawings. Um, and, you know, we don't know for sure. We haven't done a feasibility study yet. We don't know for sure that we can do this, but we need to make some initial investments if we have any chance of it becoming a reality. Now, Amy, there are a couple of other things. First of all, I want to welcome Chuck Harper to this call. Um, Chuck is just completing a little mini campaign. He's taken our mini campaign project and he will have been very successful. Chuck, I love what you've written. If you could copy it and paste it, send it to all instead of just to the panelists, that would be great. It's a little testimonial and that makes me happy. <laughs> so <laughs> cut it and paste it in the blue, the little blue bar, change that to all 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 attendees. attendees. All attendees. Yes, because right now we can only only see your very sweet words. Right. Okay, good. Thank you. And Chuck. remember that um, that if you put put your questions in the Q and A box, and then it's easier for us to follow. Now, yeah. Amy, I have another timing issue for you. So here we periodically have people who call us and say, you know, the head our headmaster is getting ready to retire, and as a parting gesture, he wants to have a campaign. And I have to say, it always makes me cringy right? when, that, when that happens. Or once I even had somebody who was an interim director 
who decided that they were going to move a campaign forward. Right. And that made me cringe even more. One of the things that you have to have to realize is that donors are donors give their the most donors are willing to invest in your organization when they have confidence in the future of your organization. So to have a campaign because an executive director or headmaster is retiring next year and he thinks it wants he wants it to be a parting gift to the institution is just not such a great idea. You can have a gala to honor him, but don't let him go half cocked into it into a capital campaign right at the end of his tenure. And there can be some sort of uh, honorary fund, right? They can, you know, everybody who wants to give a gift in honor of that person, create a fund, but it's not a full campaign. I mean, very similar, you know, lots of organizations will come to us and say, uh, we want to have a campaign because of our, it's our anniversary, right? Anniversaries are looking at what you did in the past. Remember, campaigns are forward-looking. And so you want to make sure that you have a vision and a plan for the future. That's what's going to make donors dig deep. Um, and, and Jacqueline, I see you're saying, unless you have a new person already in place, of course, absolutely. But the donors will probably want to wait and meet that person and make sure that they their vision is simpatico with what the donors want to do. Um, so anyway. All right, Andrea, we've got that's also a great opportunity, right? If you have a new a new director in in place, that new director can do a round of leadership interviews, right? As part of the onboarding, really, or the first six months, and explore the possibilities of a campaign with the largest donors that he or she is going to be wanting to talk to. So that's not a bad, that's not a bad sort of slide right on ramp onto a capital campaign. If you have a, if you have a new director, right. But don't, don't let yourself, don't let your organization go forward. If the leadership is iffy, right. If the board leadership is iffy people, people who are going to invest in your organization do so because they trust in your organization's ability to move ahead into the future. So, so, so Andrea, I seem to recall this issue coming up a few months back, and I can't remember exactly what the details were, but I think it was something about it, you know, a school perhaps starting or in the middle of a campaign and the director left, right? The headmaster leaves. You know, in that case, I mean, you can go back and forth about what to do, but the reality is the school's going to be there and the school needs funding and the it's in progress. And as long as the board can come together and say, we have a succession plan. Here's the plan for hiring someone. We have tr- people that we trust from the community on the hiring committee. Um, you know, the project moves forward. So I think that there are some instances when, yes. when yeah. you move forward. Right. Well, and certainly, you know, the question is whether you're going to plan a campaign when you know your leadership is changing. That's one circumstance. Another circumstance is when mid-campaign the executive director quits or leaves or dies or gets sick or whatever happens. Right. You can't control that. Right. Then you move forward. Right. And that's of course, that's what you do. But but don't plan. Don't plan on it. Right. That's a bad idea. Yeah. So okay. One more thing, Amy, and this is going to be a quick one, but just one more timing thing, because it's so crisp, crisp and clear, which is that people often want to know, well, when, how my, how long can we raise money for? And it is really true that once your project is done, once your building is finished, once the ribbon is cut, your ability to raise money for that project is going to, is going to slow way down. It may come to a screeching halt, in fact, maybe not quite a screeching halt, but but you want to plan to have raised the money for that project and to celebrate success before the ribbon is cut, right? Even if it means that, that you've had to find funds from other places to pay for it, that's okay. You just don't want to get to the place where the ribbon is cut and you say, well, we are $500,000 short on being able to pay for this thing. Why don't you give now? Right? You don't want to put yourself in a position of doing that. So plan on the campaign to end just before the ribbon is cut, if you can do that. 
Right. All right. And, and we have lots of strategies in the toolkit yes. that we can blog about and talk about, or you can come talk to us about, about how to work that timing towards the end of the campaign so that you don't come up short. Uh, you may have to delay the ribbon cutting, even if you're already in the building. Yep. Right. That's right. Um, so yeah, you can wiggle that a little, right? You can wait. Yeah. You can wield that a little. So, okay. Last thing. And then we really will get to questions. Andrea, talk about the start of a campaign. I think a lot of people always ask us, how do we know when we're either ready for a campaign and or ready to start asking for gifts, right? Those are fuzzy, I think, in a lot of people's minds. So I think that's right. Comment on on the start timing of a campaign. And and that actually makes me laugh sometimes because it's very common for a board for board members to think that the beginning of a campaign is going out and asking for gifts long before they're ready, right? They want a campaign brochure, fancy campaign brochure, and let's ask for gifts. I mean, in fact, we had one client we've just taken on recently that didn't know much about capital campaigns. They they have a lot of donors and they decided they were just going to go ahead with the campaign. And what did they do? They They printed some beautiful brochures and they sent them out to their top 500 donors. That was the beginning of their campaign in their minds, right? Now, of course, many of you on the call are fairly seasoned and experienced, and you know what happened, right? Which is that they got, I don't know, $30,000 from 500 donors or something like that when they needed a million and a half. So it was clearly not the way to do a campaign. Now, to get to your question, Amy, so when does this campaign start? So when you have a board that's saying we want to start our campaign and they think what they mean is a brochure and going out and asking, what you want to say is, yes, it is time to start our campaign. And what that means is that we have to first decide what our campaign objectives are. And then we have to put together our gift range chart. And then we have to do a a guided feasibility study or a depth chart or some leadership interviews. If they don't want to do a feasibility study, that's okay. You say, yes, we don't want to do a feasibility study. We're going to do a set of leadership interviews so that we bring our largest donors on. So you keep backing up, making, making start of the campaign farther and farther in advance of the asking for money, all the while saying to them, yes, we are starting our campaign. Right? You never want to say, no, we're not ready. What you want to say is that all the readiness stuff is really the start of your campaign. And maybe like in Sebastian's campaign, buying that little piece of land was the start of his campaign, right? You back it up far enough, that's what you that's where you get. So don't say no to people. Say yes and Right. Let's look at all the things that we that if we do them, we will be much more successful when we get around to asking people for money. Right now, the campaign toolkit, I ask, I hope all of you have been onto the toolkit and downloaded our free step by step guide and the um, time timetable. We call it timeline. They're pretty a pretty mountain mountain timeline. Um, so if you haven't, you should do that. And then you will see what the seven phases of the campaign are. And you will see that there are a bunch of phases before you actually start asking for money. That campaign timeline shows that shows that pretty well. And in the steps, you will discover that you don't need a fancy campaign brochure until you've already raised 70% of the money. And we're not going to go into too much detail. And that may be shocking to some of you who are busy trying to make campaign brochures, but campaign brochures are not necessary to raise the leadership level gift. So if you're making a campaign brochure, stop what you're doing <laughs> and, and come see us and we'll talk about what you should be doing instead. All right, let's go to the questions. Uh, Jody's asking, we have the land, we have the plans. Are there grants that we can apply for as well as bricks and mortar? So Jody, I think, you know, hopefully you've made a gift range chart and you've figured out how many gifts at what levels you need for your campaign to be successful. I think that some foundations might be interested in funding your building and your plans, but you also probably need to have a handful or more than a handful of individual donors who are committed to seeing your project succeed 
if you are relying on grant applications, I would say that you are not in a position to do a campaign right now. Right. And so, uh, so I, Andrea, see, I see Amy, I just, I just scrolled up and um, Jody, I think you're from the Boys and Girls Club, right? In Livingston County. So you probably, I assume you're raising money for a new club, for a new clubhouse. Is that right? If that's right. I mean, if you're like many boys and girls clubs, you have some history with fundraising. You have a board, you know, that's been around for a while, right? Your organization probably has some, has some history of fundraising, right? And, and what you want to be doing is to put together, as Amy said, a gift range chart that shows how the gifts will, what kinds of gifts you need to bring in to be successful. And then you need to put together a list of the people you might ask at those levels and really put together a campaign plan. Your Boys and Girls, the National Boys and Girls Club actually has pretty good resource for in capital campaigns to help you with with capital campaigns and doing a feasibility study. And if you haven't reached out to them yet, you should. We would encourage you to do that. Yeah, so Jody's saying we have our gift charts, but we do need to write some grants as well. So, you know, you want to treat your foundation funders, your grant funders, like any other major donor and go sit down and talk to them. Uh, Hopefully they will be... uh, agreeable to a conversation prior to you writing a grant. You want to have a pretty good sense that they would be interested in seriously considering your project. Um, All right. Yeah, you know, Jacqueline House has just made an interesting comment about foundations, and it's one that I really want to highlight because I think it's so good and important. So you can see in the chat, she said they're putting the foundations into the gift level, into as in into the gift chart. Um, the foundations will be part of our leadership conversations and not outright applications. And I think that's right. You know, I think of foundations and individual contributions in sort of the same way because... Because even in foundations, someone is making the decision. Some, someone or people are making the decision. And the relationship has to be built between your organization and those people. Even if you have to start with the gatekeeper of the foundation. Of course, most, many foundations have gatekeepers. But, but look at that as, a, as an interesting campaign challenge. You know, how you build the relationship with the people who are going to make the decisions at those foundations, rather than just writing a cold grant, build a relationship first. Yeah, so, so I, I love I love Miriam's comment here. The planning chart is my new office wallpaper. Yes. <laughs> so, so right. now, Miriam, we could take that literally and figuratively. Inside the toolkit is actually a six foot by three foot wall chart. It's a planning chart. So you may have actually literally gone to your local copy shop and had a a six foot wall chart <laughs> printed out. Um, I love the description that it's your new office wallpaper. But honestly, uh, whether or not you're a member, uh, anybody is a member of the toolkit, you know, you can put up post-its, you can put up your plans, you can put up your gift range chart and tack it all over your wall as your new wallpaper. But uh, I love that. I have to tell you why that's a really good idea, particularly as people start working in their offices again and aren't just sitting at home, that when board members come in, right, to your office and, you know, maybe you tack them up on the, in the boardroom. It will help your board understand how the campaign functions if you put things up in a way that they can actually see them and not just on their computer screen. So there is a practical reason to put things on the wall, which is why we came up with this six foot by three foot chart. Melissa's asked a good question here. So what about timing for building renovations and how much detail is necessary Right. How much do you have to know about what the building is going to look like? So there probably are architects or people with experience in architecture here. But the little that I know is that is that architects go through various phases of design. Right. And this is true if you're if your building is going to be designed by a builder. Also, there is what they call a schematic design, which sort of lays out the square footage in the appropriate places and orders, but doesn't show any finishes or any great detail. And then there is the design development phase of your of your um, building project. And then there is are the working drawings from which they can actually do a very precise cost estimate 
because by that time you have to have decided on all the finishes and treatments and furnishings and all of that. When you are planning for a capital campaign, you should be at least in the, in the schematic phase. So someone can get a sense of what is going to be in this building and roughly how it's going to be laid out. And then as your campaign moves forward, you're, you're presumably your architectural drawings are gradually going to get more and more specific also. So you don't want to just to start with a, you know, well, we want to put together a building. You actually want at least a preliminary floor plan, right? And be sure it's marked preliminary with dates. So no one's, then if it changes, okay, people get that this stuff changes, but, but go at least to the initial schematic phase of your, of your um, architectural process. All right. Going back to the last question, Gary is chiming in. The more significant personal gift commitments you have, the more successful you will be in foundation and grant requests. So, you know, I think some foundations probably do care a lot that you've raised money from people in the community first before they contribute. So, you know, finding out if that's important or relevant to them that, you know, no foundation wants to be your sole funder. So you are going to have to show that other people are in on the project. Yeah. I want to go back again to this boys and girls club question um, because Jody has brought up something I think important. She says in the chat, she says, we are a very rural population of 3000 people. They don't have a foundation there. They're looking for grants at a national level. And while the boys and girls, boys and girls club of, uh, of America is supportive, but but, you know, that you're barking up a hard tree there. Is that a good expression? I don't know. You're barking up the wrong tree probably is the, is the right expression. Yeah. It's very, very rare for national foundations to give to local building projects. It used to be that the Kresge Foundation did that for all kinds of interesting reasons, but they had new leadership a bunch of years ago. And I think their focus changed a lot. So you can't count on them for local funding either. It's very difficult. What that means, Jody, really, is that you are going to have to learn as much as you can about the 3,000 people in your community and see who the people are who have the capacity to give significant gifts. And then you're going to have to scale your campaign to what is to what is possible. Unless the National Boys and Girls Club, and they may have this, unless the National Boys and Girls Club has a relationship with foundations that set aside money to fund local Boys and Girls Clubs. And they may have those relationships. I don't know that. If not, that would be something interesting for the National Boys and Girls Club to think about doing, right? You can imagine the National Boys and Boys and Girls Clubs of America going to a big foundation and saying, we have clubs in, you know, we have X number, I don't know, what are they, 1,500 clubs, maybe 15,000 clubs, a lot of clubs. <laughs> Some of them are in rural areas and don't have funding. And we want a foundation gift that if our rural clubs could raise X number of dollars, the National Foundation will give Y. Now, you, Jody, can't make that happen but they, at the national level, they may be able to make that happen. So you can push them to do that. And if they don't get it, have them call us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for, Jody's saying 4,500 clubs. All right. Yeah, I knew there were a lot of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Nancy, Annette, Nancy, I'm not sure if she was working with us for the mini campaign, but she's saying with COVID, we have found that a detailed, uh, that detailed key points and an inspiring brochure with easy to read look and visuals have been really important to our advice visits. Now that sounds really similar to what we're calling donor discussion guides, right? So there is a difference between a fancy brochure and a nicely laid out, easy to read uh, chart. I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Donor discussion guide. Yeah. Um, So we are having people both um, in our mini campaign program. Oh, Melissa's saying a pitch document. So 
The reason that it's not a pitch document, although, you know, I understand where you're going there, is we don't want to get into the mode of pitching donors. We want to make sure that we're having a conversation with them. So maybe a highlights document or, a, you know, a, a benefits and highlights document. We're calling it a donor discussion guide. Um, but it is it is preliminary. It's the plan. And so we can go out and talk to donors with um, with this discussion document so that we can ask questions and get feedback. So um, pitch implies that it's one way. And I want to make sure that we stay away from words that encourage pitches. We want to be um, encouraging dialogue and having conversations, especially, well, at all times of the campaign. I was about to say, especially early on, but certainly when you're asking for a gift as well, you're not pitching the donor. You're, you're having a conversation. You're having having a discussion about how they would like to help and be involved. Of course, you're sharing details about the project. Um, but anyways, okay. Good. Talking. Good. Andrea, like what? Marianne calls it a talking paper. I think that, 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 that's a sweet name. I like that. So Miriam, Miriam's question is this. Uh, the donor who's giving, in quotes, giving us the land will probably center uh, on a lease agreement, not an outright ownership by our organization. How can we arrange, how can that arrangement affect the capital campaign? Does a lease on land make it more difficult to have a successful campaign? How do we explain this agreement to the donors? Well, the issue that you need to be looking at, and it's not so uncommon that organizations have a lease agreement for the land, right? That's not, it's not out of the, out of total realm of, of um, the ordinary. However, you, you can't afford to have it be only a three-year lease, right? If you're going to build on a piece of land, you need to know the, the agreement has to be one that, that secures the land for you for some significant period of time. And that the details of how your relationship with the with the, you know, the donor, with the person who's going to give you the land is spelled out very well with the help of a good attorney. So people will have questions about it, but most of them are quite answerable as long as your documentation is sound. Yeah. And, and your example of a three-year lease, Andrea, it made me catch my breath. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I was talking to an organization the other day and the city is leasing them the land. So it's a little different than an individual, but it's a 99-year lease. Right. To me, that is nice and solid. You can build on that. You can explain that. I mean, I wouldn't build a building if it's just a 10-year lease. I mean, I would want to see a 20 or more year lease with options to renew or purchase, you should, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to build a building. And then, you know, five years later, they change their mind. That would not be good. Right. Well, you also need to, I would imagine you need to have something in that that says, what if something happens to the donor? Mm. Right. What happens then? You need to be well protected in case, you know, in case something happens to the donor. Yeah. Or they decide to move out of town or what, you know, whatever. I mean, you need to protect yourself. Well, it's not a donor. This is the landlord, essentially, right? Well, it's a landlord, who, but who is not charging them for the. Right, right. right. You're right. Okay, so, good. So Ch Chad's saying that they have a 99-year renewable lease. So, all right. All right. Donna's asking, can a lease. like a prison term, right? Like a prison term. When you, you know, you have a prison term of 322 years. Doesn't mm -hmm. that make you wonder? Right. Mm. Like, how do they figure that out anyway? All right. Uh, Donna says, can a lead gift be an honor of a retired executive director? Sure. I don't see why not. Yeah, sure. The question is then how do you, what do you do as a naming opportunity or how do you, you know, here's what to watch for. Okay. There is a, there, there is a mistake people make about this. Um, so, a donor can make a gift of lead gift, let's say it's a quarter of a million dollars, and donor can say, I want to give a quarter of a million dollar lead gift, and I want my, my gift to be in honor of Susie Smith, who was the executive director for a very long time, and instead of putting my name on a plaque, I want to put Susie Smith's name on a plaque, right? And that's perfectly credible. Here's where people run into trouble. 
what they think is, well, we need a gift of $250,000. We don't offhand know one donor who can do that. So we are going to see, we are going to say anybody who gives towards this $250,000 in honor of Susie Smith will help us honor Susie Smith. Now that's a problem, right? That's a problem. So why is it a problem? Well, because Amy Eisenstein, who happens to be a very wealthy woman who's going to give to your campaign, sees that she can give $10,000 to the to the Susie Smith honor gift, and then she can be done with her campaign pledge. You don't want Amy to give $10,000 to $250,000 gift. You want her to give a large gift to the campaign. So be careful that you don't cannibalize your, your naming opportunities by making one gift the honor gift and inviting multiple people to give to it. Especially, especially if it's the lead gift that you're asking about, Donna. So, I mean, I could see doing that sort of crowdfunding type of gift at the end of your campaign. You might invite everybody to give a gift in honor of the executive director to finish the campaign once you've raised all the lead gifts. Um, But you wouldn't want, as Andrea clearly articulated, why you wouldn't want to do it at the beginning or for a lead gift. And that does happen. People say, we want to we want to name this room in honor of Dr. You know, whoever, who was the headmaster of this school for 30 years. Well, and the other thing that can happen is this. This is really an even worse scenario that they decide that they want to want to want to have a fund in honor of Dr. Smith. And lo and behold, it's disappointing what people give. And then they're in this embarrassing position of Dr. Smith's being dishonored rather than honored. So you have to watch your P's and Q's pretty carefully in this honoring, this honoring stuff. Um, All right. Uh, Please share a few of your favorite campaign related questions you'd like to ask lead donors and trustees prior to soliciting early campaign gifts from them. That's a great question. And I would love it if people would chat in some of their favorite questions. Um, Amy and I are happy to share some of ours, but there are a lot of experienced fundraisers on this call. So chat in. Gary Bukowski, what are some of your favorite questions? I know you have a bunch of them. You've done a lot of this over the years. And you're not the only person who has a lot of experience here. So let's... So, Andrea, while we're waiting for people to chat in their questions, so the the questions you should be chatting in are, what do you ask lead donors and trustees prior to soliciting early campaign gifts from them? So, Andrea, why don't you talk about how how that fits into what a feasibility study is. I'd be happy to do that. Um, so, you know, here, here we really encourage organizations before they, they go into a campaign as part of their readiness to do some kind of a leadership interview process. Often people call it a feasibility study. We, uh, we encourage organizations to do what we call guided feasibility studies where they do the interviews and a, an outside consultant doesn't do them. And the idea is this. You are not talking to these donors just about how much money they would give in the abstract. You're actually testing your campaign plan. You're going to them and saying, here's what our organization is thinking about doing. And we want your sense of whether this is a good idea, what you think, what you know in the community, what your inclination is. Is this something you would be excited about or would help with? Right. What advice do you have for us about all kinds of other things? Right. Then you pull all of those and all of that response together into some kind of an organized way. And that then creates a a report that says, you know, here from from what we can tell, having talked to all of our largest donor prospects, we will be able to raise roughly X amount of money in our campaign. Doing that process protects your organization. It helps you not go into a campaign blind. And it also engages your major donors in a very real way. And each of those, both of those things are important. They're equally important. So that's where you would want to be asking people questions if you if you can. Um, all right. Have we gotten any answers, Amy? 
No, uh, Amy, Amy's showers uh, suggesting a question that the donor came back at her with, which we can talk about. Uh, so Amy says, I'm not sure if this happens often, but a question I got was what level are my peers giving at? Um, it was a retired business owner and he wanted to know what some of the other donors in our community that he knew were giving. Uh, she writes, it's kind of a loaded question and to be prepared to um, be asked if you've done business with if it's a business that you're going to. Right. Um, so. so. So, OK, so stop for a sec, because what I would want you to do in that situation and you can understand why he wants to know that he wants to know if it's going to be successful and he wants he doesn't want to be the fool. Right. No one wants to be the only person giving a big gift if his friends aren't. So he's he's looking to protect himself. That's a reasonable human response. But what I would but what I would probably I would probably want to turn that around and say, you know, we haven't really been asking people for gifts yet, but we do have some. We are going to be approaching some of your friends. What do you think we should be asking them for? Right, take it and see if you can turn it around instead of falling for the trap he's laid for you. Right. <laughs> he did lay a trap for you. Yeah. I mean, you could you could also say, you know what? Uh, we're only talking to people right now we believe might consider giving the top level gifts, right? We're looking, we're talking to people initially who might consider giving the leadership level gifts. You know, do you, are you one of those people? And do you think your friends are giving at those levels? Because that's who we're going to be talking to first. Yeah. You're one. Yeah. And here is the gift range chart. These are yeah. the levels at which we are we are going to be talking to people, to you and your peers for gifts at these levels, right? Who else do you think we should be talking to with this? Good. Yes. And Meredith's saying you could show a gift chart that shows give gifts you've received right. so far if you've right. gotten to asking. Yes. Um, so Terry is saying, who do you suggest in the interview process? Uh, whoops, now I lost it. Who do you suggest is in the interview process with the lead donors? Oh, I, I thought she was asking, um, answering the other question, but we can we can certainly answer that as well. Um, yes. So, you know, there's two ways generally uh, to do this, uh, a feasibility study or test the case and the, the working goal for your campaign. One is to hire an outside consultant to go do the interviews with the lead donors. Um, and that has traditionally been the way that organizations have done that. Um, we believe that, that it makes more sense to have organizational leaders go out and do the interviews. So it would be the CEO or executive director of your organization. It might be the board chair. It might be the development director. Um, but really, we suggest that the leaders of your organization go do these interviews. And sometimes they do them individually. Um, occasionally, if you have a lot of time and resources, you might send in the executive director and the board chair. Um, it's probably one person doing the interviews to save time and resources. Well, maybe a couple, maybe, maybe. maybe two, but certainly not half a dozen, right? No, certainly not not a whole bunch. I mean, there are some advantages to having two people, but one person can do them. That I think that's that's fine. Um, Jabwire, Jennifer Jabwire has asked what what leadership level gifts. You know, in many campaigns, the top gift to the campaign is somewhere between fifteen and twenty. 5% of the campaign goal. So that's a place to start your thinking about what a, what a leadership level gift might be to look at the top gift and then work down from there. Um, let's see. What else here? Naming opportunities from a local utility, from local utility companies. I don't, is there any reason not to let them name something? I don't think so. I mean, unless you're worried about, you know, if you're in an environmental organization and the local utility company is destroying the environment, I mean, unless it conflicts with your mission, I don't, Barbara, I don't know why you wouldn't have a naming opportunity from the local utility company. Um, there may be something we're missing there. All right, Jacqueline's asking. Wait, wait, wait. Miriam has answered the question we asked to answer. So we have to we have to give a shout out to Miriam. We asked the question, what questions would you ask 
as donors, right? And Miriam's given us a whole host of them in the Q and A. So, what do you hope your gift will accomplish? Right, that's a that's a great one. Things about you know what do they like to give? What what is it about our mission that resonates with you? That's a great one, right? What kind of impact do you see yourself having in this campaign? Right, all these are questions about the person she's talking to, which is of course what you want to be doing. You don't want to be telling them. You want to be drawing out from them. Uh, how would you like to be involved in this campaign? Does the goal of this campaign resonate with you? Does the goal seem possible to meet in our community? Miriam, you get a star. <laughs> gold star I, I, today. I don't know. I think, well, yes, you definitely get a gold star. I think you may be doing a guided feasibility study with one of our advisors right now, but that is perfect. You are yes. a star student. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if that's started yet, but that's excellent. Um, Andrea, you know, just to wrap up this piece of the conversation, because I think it's something that everyone wonders, how do you go and talk to donors prior to a campaign? You have a beautiful diamond shaped philosophy yes. of how you structure your Thank questions. You. Why don't you talk about that briefly? Sure. So, you know, when I was a traditional capital campaign consultant, which I did for a long time, I did a lot of feasibility study interviews. So many feasibility study interviews that I remember to this day sitting there with the head of a local corporation thinking to myself, I never want to do this again. <laughs> yeah, I've done too many of these. That's the end, right? I mean, I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, I just, this feels like rote. So here's what I learned over all those years. I learned that it, number one, that it was way better if I could have those conversations without having a, a form that I was filling out as I talked to people, right? That the conversations flowed much better if I wasn't checking things off or writing answers or that all of that got in the way of a flowing conversation where I could really listen to the donors. What that meant was that I had to have a very clear picture in my mind of what I wanted the how I wanted the conversation to go so that I could do it without reading questions, right? It needed to be sort of in my brain. And I came up with a diamond shape that all of my interviews were diamond shaped. They began at the top. You imagine a diamond shape, right? That like the, like the five of diamonds in a card, you know, card deck or whatever diamonds. At the top, it was very narrow and the narrow was about the donor. It was about, you know, Amy, I'm so happy to be talking to you today, right? Tell me how you came to be interested in this. You've given to this organization a long time. How did you come to be interested in it? Right. So I would find a question that was specifically about Amy that she could uniquely answer, right? Because it had to do with her motivation and and her, it wasn't just gee, nice weather out there, you know, did you get wet coming to work? It was, I was trying to use, I was trying to find a connection specifically about her. And if it could be a connection that was, that how, how it connects her to our, that organization, I would, I would go there. So very specific questions about the donor, right here. I have taken a look at your you know, I know about you. You're a major donor to our community. I see that you give to a lot of capital campaigns in our community, and you're very generous in how you do that. How do you make your decisions? Why do you do that? What's What motivates you to be so generous in what you've done? All about the donor. That's the top of the pyramid. Then gradually, I would get broader and start to weave in more and more about the organization until I got to the middle of the pyramid, which was fairly broad. And then I would be talking about the organization, what they think of the organization, what the campaign plans were, right? And we would have, and what they thought of the campaign plans, right? That was the whole middle part. So it starts with the donor, it broadens to the organization. And then at the end, the bottom part goes back to the donor, but now it's much more specific, it's, you know, Amy, I know, I understand now what you think of this. And it sounds like this is something you might want to get involved in. Would you consider help serving on a campaign steering committee for this? Would you consider helping us with the XYZ? Is this something you might consider making a gift to when we're ready for that phase of the campaign? Those, again, are very specific 
to the donor. They're not broad about the organization. They're very specific. So I found that if I followed that picture, that diamond shape, that it was simple enough I could get it in my brain, that I always knew where I was, and yet I could flow the conversation with whatever the donor was telling me. It was hugely helpful. Right. So start with a few questions about the donor, then broaden to the organization and the campaign and have several questions about what they feel like about the campaign plans and the organization itself, and then narrow again back to the donor and how they would be involved in the campaign and their potential commitment to the campaign. Beautiful. Okay. So listen, we've got a few more minutes Um, And I just want to remind everybody on today's call that if you want to discuss the timing of your campaign, uh, your gift range chart, planning for a campaign, getting ready, uh, or a feasibility study, we would love to talk to you about the specifics of your campaign. You can go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and sign up to talk to one of our campaign experts and apply for a strategy session to speak with us specifically about your campaign. Um, I am also excited that on the website now, there is, there's two types of demos we have. If you go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and click on Start Now, you can watch a four-minute demo video of how we support our clients, or you can sign up for a 20-minute live demo with one of our campaign experts and get your questions answered. So, um, all right, Andrea, let's wrap it up with yeah, one a last couple things. Yes. Um, Janine, you must be in Hawaii. Mahalo, she, she says. You, yes. I think that I think that's from Hawaii, and uh, and and I want to say, Ellen, your hand has been raised. Honestly, we never know what to do with raised hands, so you have to put things in the in the Q and A instead of raising your hands. Roberta, yours too. Don't raise your hands because we don't know what to do, how to how to handle that. So if you have a question, put it in the Q and A. Kim Maria Clark campaign. Can we talk about the campaign close next week, dear? Bring that as a first question next week and we will and we will be sure to get to it. Um, anything else? No, Bar- Barbara's saying uh, for the boys and girls clubs, she was talking about uh, sponsorship or naming from the utilities company. That was advice for that rural boys right. and girls club. So excellent. Right. Good. All right. Good. All right. Uh, Jacqueline, send us your question in more detail, I think, in an email and we will get back to you. And it was wonderful seeing everybody. Always a great Uh, conversation and discussion. Great questions. We so appreciate it. And just remember that if you are listening live, we are also available on podcast. Every week this is recorded and will come as a podcast. The podcast is called All About Capital Campaigns. So if you ever can't join us live, you can always listen later via podcast. And if you're listening right now via podcast and you'd like to join us live on Mondays, please do so. Visit the Capital Capital Campaign Toolkit website and sign up for Toolkit Talks and you can submit your questions live. All right, everybody. It was great to see you. Thanks again. Have a great week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.